Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> My name is Justin, and I'm one of the associate pastors here, the newest associate pastor. And I'm oh, thank you. So glad you guys could all be here today. I'm so glad that you guys that are watching online could join us online today. I realized years and years ago that the Lord's house really is built on prayer, or the Lord's kingdom really built on prayer. His house and the work that he gets done is really built on coffee. <coughs> it truly is. Um, like I said, my name is uh, Justin. I'm one of the newest associate pastors here, and um, I'm excited to be with you, excited to be able to teach here for the first time. It's been a while. The last time that I taught, I was actually with a, a missionary organization, Mercy Ships, and I was nobody special. I was just an electrician. I made sure lights worked. But we were on a ship, and the ship would perform uh, surgeries in off the west coast of Africa. And so, again, I was not one of the chaplains. I was not a translator. I was not a surgeon. I was an electrician. And they asked me one day if I would be willing to teach and, and I did, and it was phenomenal. But the great part about it was is that it was during a time of COVID. And so I was teaching on the ship, and we were stuck out in the middle of nowhere in a Spanish port where they docked oil rigs. And we did not have any ship. We couldn't have shore leave. We couldn't go anywhere. So the great thing about it was is that they didn't like my teaching. There was no place they could go. We were stuck <laughs> on the boat. You're stuck with me. <laughs> So we are continuing this morning on our series, The Identity in Christ. Our what is our identity in Christ? And we've been going through a lot of different verses. Our identity as a child of God, being adopted into the family of God. Our, you know, there's a lot of really great I am statements in the Bible. There's a lot of great statements in the Bible about who we are in Christ. And it's been really great for me because I realized I've had identity crises my entire life without realizing it. When I was younger, I, um, I was, like any young guy, I was really self-conscious, so I identified myself. My identity was wrapped up in the cool things that I could do, right? I wasn't super athletic. I, wasn't a, I couldn't run, jump, or throw, but um, I surfed when I was a kid. I, I surfed, and then we lived, in, um, we lived in a very cold place. We were in England, and they would get these big storms that would sit off like the, in the North Sea, and we would get these big swells, and they're like, well, I can't play soccer, but I, my identity can be a surfer, because I can do that. Basically, just don't fall over, and if you do, look cool while you're doing it, and you'll be fine. <laughs> my identity was wrapped up in the things that I could do. I could surf, I could rock climb, and that was my identity, and then when I got older, and you kind of go through another identity crisis, well, who am I now, because I don't surf, and I don't rock climb, and I've got a real job. Like, I can't afford it. I can't just go do this all the time. So then my identity became wrapped up in what I did. I was an electrician. I was a tradesman. And my identity became wrapped up in the things and the skills the Lord gave me, the things I could do with my hands. And that became my identity. And I was um, invited to do ministry as a younger man. And my identity became wrapped up in who I was, not in the Lord, but what I was doing for the Lord. My identity became wrapped up in being a youth pastor. My identity became wrapped up in being a missionary. And all the things that I was doing for God became my identity. And you realize when you build your foundation and your identity on those things, it's going to always fail you and let you down. If your identity is in being a mother, if your identity is in being a firefighter, a police officer, a teacher, a ro like a cowboy, my identity is being a biker. My identity is being a trucker. My identity isn't something other than Christ. It will always let you back down. 
and you'll start floundering and going through an identity crisis of, well, who am I when the Lord takes these things away? Who am I if I don't have kids anymore? Who am I if, you know, there's an accident and I'm no longer an electrician? I'm no longer a welder. I can't work with my hands. And you start going through these deep existential crises of who am I if I no longer have these things in my life? But when your identity is built on Christ and I am a child of God, then you are always rooted and grounded in something that doesn't fail you. Like, oh man, I am a child of God. That's where my identity sits and then I will not be let down. And then if something happens and I can't use my hands, my identity is not gone. If something happens and I no longer have family around me, then my identity is not gone. If I lose my job at work, if the economy turns and I'm no longer a police officer, a firefighter, I'm no longer a teacher, I'm no longer a professor, I'm no longer, then you still have your identity in Christ and you know who you are and not what you do. So it was something that this has been really... It's been really good for me, and it's something, it's unfortunately a lesson the Lord has to teach me over and over and over again. Justin, you are my child. You are not who, what you do, and you are not what you do for me. I am more important than the work you do for me. I was realizing for a while that God does not need me to build his kingdom. The work that I do for the Lord is not that important. He can get anybody else to do this work. He can get anyone else to be an electrician. He can get anyone else to to hang out with kids at a youth group at another church. He can get anyone to do it. He just needs someone that's willing to listen. So your identity is in me. Your identity is not in what you do. So if you have your Bible or if you have your cell phone or your iPad, which is still weird to me, like for the longest time when I was a youth pastor, we used to get on kids that would get their cell phones out at church. And they would say like, oh, but Je- Pastor Justin, Pastor John, it's, it's, I got the Bible app. I got the Bible app, and anytime you'd walk up behind them, they're playing Angry Birds, and I'm like, brother, you ain't on. <laughs> I'm not saying I do that in church, but I'm not saying I've never done it in church. <laughs> we used to have three services, and I would have to attend the Saturday night service and then occasionally sit through two Sunday morning services. So the first time, maybe even the second time I had the Bible app open, the third time I had the Angry Birds going. <laughs> but if you have your Bible with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 18 and 19 this morning. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, it says, For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and, the, and saints, members of the household of God, having been built on one foundation, the found, <clears throat> on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So this morning we're going to talk about being a saint in Christ. In Christ I am a saint. So later you can give Dan a hard time. He is not a Green Bay Packers fan. He's not a cheesehead. He's a saint. And we'll just start telling him who that every time we see him. So we are no longer strangers but now we are saints and citizens of heaven. Now you belong to another country. You belong to heaven. We're citizens in heaven. When we've given our life to Christ and we've been adopted into the family of God, now we have a new identity in Christ and we have a new citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. And it kind of, this, this did not mean a whole lot to me when I was younger until I had the fortunate opportunity to travel. 
And I realized the more that I travel, the more the country you come from this, and this, where you're a citizen of, what passports you have, what rights you have, what places you're able to go and not to go, really come into a play. It makes a difference where your passport comes from when you're traveling abroad. There are some countries you need a visa to get into, right? You have to apply months ahead of time. You have to get permission. You have to let them know where you're going, what you're doing, because I want to visit your country. And there are some places that we have great diplomatic relationships with. They said, oh, you're American? Okay, you can come in. Just make sure you don't stay longer than a month. Like, you can just, you can just come and go. That's fine. You've got... You're a citizen of the United States, and we, and, and we know that country. Right? When I traveled abroad, because when I was a kid, I lived overseas on a military base, and because our government had worked something out with the government of another country, when we gave them our passport and when we gave them paperwork saying this is who we are and what we're doing, we got stamps saying you can stay as long as you want, you can come and go as much as you want because of where you're a citizen of, because of the agreements our countries have. When we were with Mercy Ships, we were allowed in and out of different countries based on the fact that we were, um, we were American citizens and that we were also a part of an organization that had agreements with those countries. Places most people don't normally go, we would get special stamps made for us to say, oh, you're here with Mercy Ships? You can stay in this country longer than we normally let travelers. You can come and go as you please. When we were... When we would sail to another shipyard, we would go to a shipyard in Spain, right? There are certain rules when you're a mariner, when you work on ships, that you are allowed in almost every country if you're on a ship, but you can only go a certain, you can only go like 25 miles away from the port, from your ship. You got to stay near where the ship's docked. And they're like, oh, you're American? Okay, yeah, you can just go travel. We, we've got good diplomatic relationships with you. You can just travel, right? And so I also got privileges because I had a book that said I was a seaman. I was not only a citizen of the U.S., but I, I sailed. So like, okay, you can come and go. When I was in Africa, we could go to embassies. I could go to the U.S. embassy because I was a citizen of the U.S. And in fact, during COVID, um, we weren't sure what was happening. The world was not sure what was happening. We were closing surgeries down on the ship because most of the people that came to perform the operations came from Europe where they were having a lot of problems with COVID. So we said in order to keep... Uh, and keep people safe on the ship. We're not going to fly more outsiders into a country that does not already have a COVID issue and possibly introduce it. We were trying, people were trying to figure out where to go, what we could do, and based on where your citizenship was, those countries were telling you, hey, you already missed your window, you can't come home. We're not allowing any flights in and out. The U.S. Embassy came to the ship and said, hey, we are chartering two flights for any Americans left in Senegal, if you want to go, let us know. We're, and in three days, we're chartering two airliners to take any American citizen back to the U.S., and we'll fly you to Dallas, and you can figure out where you're going from there. But we will fly you home based on your citizenship, right? So there were rights and there are privileges that come with being citizens of certain countries. And Jesus is saying here, now you are no longer a stranger to heaven. You are not an alien. You're not a visitor trying to get entrance. Now you're a citizen and you belong here. This is now your home. We are now your people. This is now your country. You belong here. So if you've ever been someplace where you felt like you've never belonged, or you've ever been from a place that you weren't necessarily proud of, you're saying, hey, now you belong here. This is... 
your home, and you can be proud of it. So there's a lot of rights that come with being a citizen. And so I started thinking about what it is to be a saint, what it is to be set apart, what it means to be a saint. And so growing up, I did not have a great picture of what a saint was because I grew up in evangelically free, non-denominational churches, did not have a whole lot of orthodox uh, friends or Catholic friends growing up, so I never really understood what a saint was. Um, the best I could figure when I was in high school, we, uh, we, lived in, we lived in Europe, and we would go places, we'd go visit cathedrals and these beautiful churches, Westminster Abbey. I've gotten to go see Notre Dame before it burnt down, and then they rebuilt it. So you got to see some beautiful, beautiful churches, and you would see saints, and saints always to me were emaciated, pale-looking people that would just kind of like, they were always, for some reason, they're either looking down and to the right or up and to the left. I don't know why, but in every picture of a saint I've seen, they're always like, they're looking down and look like they need a cup of coffee or something. So I Googled it, and I looked up what saints were, and um, I actually found a list, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to poke fun at anyone, but I found these lists of like 13 to 14 of some of the oddest saints that people pray to. And on May 13th, Pope Francis canonized two of the most recent saints in the church at a special ceremony in Portugal, St. Francisco and St. Jacinta Mar Martho, a younger brother and sister from Portuguese parish of Fatima. They were witness an apparition of the Virgin Mary exactly 100 years ago, and Pope Francis canonized and marked this the centenary of their first miraculous vision. Because the locals at the time refused to believe the sibling's story and because they died of the great flu epidemic that swept Europe, the St. Francisco and St. Jacinta are already considered patron saints of the sick, the chronically ill, and of those ridiculed for their piety. So if you've ever been ridiculed for your piety, St. Francisco. St. Adjutor. St. Adjutor is said to have escaped Muslim captors during the First Crusade and escaped by swimming, according to various stories. He either swam to Crusader territory, swam all the way to France, or was recaptured and then transported to France by Mary Magdalene, or else he, he is claimed to have um, calmed a whirlpool that emerged beside the boat he was traveling on. Either way, he is now considered the patron saint of swimmers and those who might die of drowning. St. Balthazar, uh, medieval traditions held that the three kings who visited Jesus all came from the corner of the medieval world, and Balthazar came from Africa, possibly Egypt. At the time, um, Romany card sharps and sideshow sleight-of-hand merchants were popular entertainers across Europe, and um, because it was mistakenly believed they came from Egypt, they got the name Gypsies, and the Egyptian king... St. Balthazar is the patron saint of playing cards and playing card manufacturers. Uh, St. Saint Col Columbanus is the patron saint of motorcycles because he loved the open road. St. Drogo was afflicted by a mysterious ailment that made him physically repulsive, and he is considered the patron saint of unattractive people. Yeah. Amen. Now I know who to talk to. St. Erasmus was, um, let's see, St. Erasmus died of a horrible way. He was um, persecuted. He was captured a couple times, and they could not keep him quiet. And so his undying faith angered Emperor Maxima, and he had him beaten, whipped,
placed in a barrel of spikes, rolled down a hill, covered in pitched, set on fire, and after he had somehow survived, his, he was cut open and his intestines were wound around a winch, and he was tortured to death. So now he is the patron saint of ailment, of stomach ailments, colic and appendicitis. Um, St. Giles is said to have lived as a hermit in the south of France, and he kept himself alive by drinking the milk of a female deer, so he is the patron saint of breastfeeding. St. Gamarius um, was a woman who married an awful guy who was just horrible, and then she wanted to be a nun, and they wouldn't let her, and then her children killed her husband, their father, so now she is the patron saint of difficult marriages. Uh, St. Janarius is said to have been martyred, and they kept some of his blood in a vial, and apparently three times a year it will turn liquid again, so he is the patron saint of blood banks. St. Linduina is the patron saint of ice skaters because she fell at 15 and never recovered while ice skating. And the list goes on and on. My personal favorite, and I, had Dennis, I gave Dennis a picture of it, is um, St. Lucy. And St. Lucy is the, uh, apparently in um, Greek or Latin, her name is Light, like the, it's Latin is Lux. So she is the patron saint of ophthalmology and electricians. And again, I'm not here to kind of poke fun at people who have um, saints as part of their tradition. I have some family that are Orthodox. They, they go to Orthodox churches and they have saints in their church. And the, I have friends who are Roman Catholic and they have saints in their church. And it was, it, it was kind of interesting for me because I didn't quite understand what they're talking about. So I'm not really here to, I mean, it's, some of them are kind of amusing and I'm not trying to poke fun at anybody. But I was thinking to myself, what is a saint? If Jesus says that I am now a saint in Christ, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a saint? And he's talking about here now, as he said in verse 19, Now you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ saying, now you are a saint because of the finished work that Christ did on the cross. Because now you have repented and you've put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. And now that atoning blood has wiped out sin in, the, in God's ledger book, right? You figure, I, I remember working a couple places that had kept old school ledger books. They were a company that had been around 100 years, and they had some of the old ledger books where they would say, you know, I bought this much wire from this company and paid this much money, and then I installed this wire at this plant. And they had ledger books so they could keep track of how much money they had coming in and how much money they had going out. And he's saying, now, based on the finished work of Christ in that ledger book, God's looking at it and saying, Jesus Christ, or Justin Brunican owes because... He's a sinner. And then he said, after this, you are now sanctified. You're a saint. And because of that, Christ paid that for you. We're going to cross out that debt, that that debt has now been paid in full and nothing else is owed. A saint is somebody who's given their life to the Lord and committed to following Christ. And now you are forgiven. Now you are a holy person. That's what is what he's talking about with a saint. So in all fairness, like as much as I joke about like a Saint Lucy, if she was a Christian and followed Christ, then she probably actually was a saint. What does it mean to be sanctified? And so we're talking about the gospel, 
And then the Bible says that when we were created perfectly, we were created without sin in the world. When, when we did sin, when Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the world, human beings are born with a sinful nature that puts us at odds with God. And there's a debt that owes, that's owed to the Lord. There's a debt that's owed that can't be paid. So when Jesus came and died on the cross and was raised again three days later, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, he's saying when you have this common denominator having been built on the foundation of Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, that's paid, that's forgiven. Um, And one of the things that I was thinking about, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, a, a little while ago who was spending all of his time right now reading the Old Testament He's spending a lot of time reading the Old Testament and reading about the rules that was set up in the Levitical priesthood. So he was talking about all the rules in the book of Leviticus and all the things that people had to follow to be to be in right standing with a holy and a righteous judge, a holy and a righteous God. And there were a lot of odd things that they would have to do to be in right standing with God. Um, And it's kind of important one of the reasons I was thinking, well, I'll just read it for you. I was in um, Isaiah chapter 6. And the prophet Isaiah is considered one of, like, one of the great prophets, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. And it said in Isaiah 6 verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim. And each one of them had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And another one cried to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken, and the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Right? He was talking about how holy that God is, how perfect that God is. And he said, when I, got, when, when I saw the Lord and I saw the holiness of heaven, I was a wreck. I was completely undone. I have no business being here. He even said, woe is me. Like, I am a perverse man with a perverse mouth, and I do not deserve to be here. And so that's what I was thinking about. Even guys like Moses Right. Moses, who is said to have been a friend of God. And I think to myself, like out of all the titles that I could have in the Bible, man, if I could be known as not just a child of God, but as a friend of God, Moses, that we really look up to as being one of the most like he's one of the he's one of the saints. He's one of the he's one of the people in the hall of faith that everybody looks up to. And Moses was Moses asked, like, Lord, all I want to do is to see your face. And he said, Moses, you can't even look at me in the eye because it'll kill you. I am so holy, you can't even look at me without dying. So I'm going to hide you, and I'm going to walk past you. I'm going to put you in a rock, and as soon as I walk past you, I'll let you see the afterglow. I'll let you see the back part of my robe. And then it said Moses glowed for weeks. Moses glowed for, in fact, it was so holy and so just out of the ordinary that it freaked out all the other Jews, and they put a they put a bag over his head because his face was just glowing and they put a bag because they said, well, we can't, we don't even want to look at you who was able to not even look at God because of how holy this is. 
And why is that important? Because now God said, because you are sanctified by the blood of my son, you can now be in my presence. You are now a citizen of heaven. You now deserve to be here with me because of the work that my son did. You now have standing to be here with me. And I was thinking about that. One of the things that I learned a few years ago that's always kind of stuck with me is the idea of standing in court. Right? So there was a lawsuit a couple of, there was a lawsuit a few years ago in Colorado involving freedom of speech, what we thought about alternative lifestyles, whether you had a right to I had to bake a cake or the, the like the Colorado baker. Everybody kind of heard about this lawsuit. And I remember thinking to myself, why doesn't someone just go to the Supreme Court and get this law changed? Why don't you just sue the state, go to the Supreme Court? And then there's a thing called standing, where you don't have standing to go straight to the Supreme Court. If you can't prove that a law is not affecting you adversely, you have no right to go to the Supreme Court. Even if you do can prove that, say, hey, you guys made this law that said everyone with an F-150 has got to pay an extra 150 bucks a year in registration. Well, that ain't fair. I got an F-150. Why do I have to pay more? I can go and I can, I can sue the state and say, look, this law is unfair. You're picking on me just because I drive a Ford F-150 and I've got standing to go to court. But if, I, if they decide against me, I can appeal to a higher court, but that doesn't mean I get to go to a higher court. They're going to decide whether or not they're going to let me in. They're going to decide whether or not they're going to hear my case. So every year, it's kind of fascinating. I'll actually read what the Supreme Court, what judgments they're going to be reading, who they're going to make decisions for, because not everyone who says, I want to go to the Supreme Court, gets to go to the Supreme Court. The judges are going to decide who they're going to let in. And one of the reasons that stuck with me is because not everyone gets standing to stand in the high court of heaven and plead your case. You don't have that right. You don't have that legal standing to say, well, when I get there, God's got some answering to do. <laughs> it, always, it always cracks me up when I tell people, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why he like, dude, if you, if you even get there, you're going to be on your face terrified. Like you're not going to demand answers of God. That's kind of arrogant. The all-powerful, all-creating supreme being who flung the universe into space and you're going to demand an answer from him. Good luck with that. You let me know how that turns out. All right, so but now he's saying because of the finished work of Christ, now that you have been sanctified and you've been made holy, now you have standing in that court. You can go to heaven and God's going to look at you and he's going to see the finished work of Christ and he's going to rule in your favor. Now you get to come into heaven and be a citizen. Now you have standing before the Lord, where before you couldn't even get into his presence because of how holy he was, how powerful, how good he was. Man, we, I couldn't even stand before him, and I doubt I'll be able to stand in front of him because I'm kind of a chicken and I got weak knees. <laughs> He's saying now you have the legal standing to be here, the holiness of God. And I love that the angels are always standing around saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So now we're going to talk about, well, who are saints? Now I know what a saint is, but who are saints? Who are the saints? And in uh, 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to have to turn there because I'm old school. I like 
I like having a paper Bible. I grew up in Sunday school, so we used to do those things called sword drills to see who could flip to the Bible faster. And I stopped doing those when kids got iPhones because you push three buttons and you could say Old Testament, New Testament, this book, this chapter, this verse. I'm like, well, that takes the fun out of it. Like, I still, I don't know about you guys, but I still have to sing the Bible verse memory song that I learned in Sunday school when it's, and they say, turn to 1 Corinthians. I got to Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Corinthians. I still have to sing the song in my head to figure out where to turn there. So in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 2, it said, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, and those who are sanctified in Christ, or sanctified in Christ Jesus, be called, or called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. I'm going to flip real quick to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Flip to uh, Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians verses 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace and peace to you from our Lord, from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's greeting the church. In all these places that he's writing letters to, he's greeting the church. He's saying, to the faithful brothers and sisters in this church, to the faithful people who have given their life to Christ and are doing their best to follow me, I want to send greetings to you and the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. So you can say to the the saints in in Tucson, to the saints in Marana, to the saints in Oro Valley, to the saints in Phoenix, to the saints in Seattle, grace and peace to you. Saying to to the people in these cities that love God and love their brother and are doing their best to follow him, grace and peace to you. He's talking about the church. He's talking about people in the church. And so and when I was younger and I would read this, every time they would talk about the saints and the churches, I would think about people like, like Paul really comes to mind. Because when you think saint, you think a holy person. Especially if you come from a tradition that, that really honors and values saints. We tend to think of people that have done miracles. We tend to think of people that are extraordinarily holy. I think of guys like Paul, the apostle. I think about Peter. And I think about even like Apollos, and I know there was an argument for a while there saying like, well, I believe, I like, to, I like listening to Paul, and I like listening to Peter. Well, I like listening to Apollos. Well, I like listening to Jesus, so I'm better than all y'all. <laughs> I also think, actually, and my favorite in the Bible, my, my favorite people in the entire New Testament, are a couple you only hear about a few times, but it's Priscilla and Aquila. I love Priscilla and Aquila because they are a, they're a husband and a wife team that has been faithfully doing ministry with Paul. They're tent makers with Paul, and throughout the entire New Testament, it's like, yeah, they were, uh, they were co-workers with me, and then they were helping me plant this church, and then they were leaders at this church, and then they're elders. Now we're going to greet these people that are also planting churches and are pastors over churches, Priscilla and Aquila. 
because they have, they've grown in the faith, and they would mentor other guys. They mentored Apollos in the, ways of the, in the ways of the Lord. So when I would think of saints in the, New Testament, in the New Testament, I would think of Priscilla and Aquila and Peter and Paul, and one of my favorites is a lady named Dorcas. And I love her name because her name is Dorcas. And every time, like, I, when I went to a church and there were a lot of younger folk that were getting married and having babies, and they're like, we're going to give our children good Bible names. I'm like, if it's a girl, you should name her Dorcas. <laughs> I have yet to get someone to take me up on it. Um, I think, I don't remember if it's in Greek or if it's in Latin, but they, her name is also translated Tabitha, which is a little easier to swallow than Dorcas. But one of the things that I loved about Dorcas is that it said when she died, her funeral was packed out with the sick, the lame, the poor, the homeless, the sinful, because she was a, she was a woman that was, that was rather well-to-do, and she made clothes and blankets and garments for people that didn't have any or that didn't have the money to get some. So it said there was this great cloud of witnesses that came to her funeral because she had given her entire life to hosting a church. She hosted the Bible study in her house, and then she made clothes and she made blankets for the poor the sick the lame and the homeless and so when she died they came to her funeral and so when i thought of saints i was thinking always of people like this that did big things for the lord and i realized that's not always a hundred percent true like yes they are saints but god also uses people where they are and what they are called to do not everybody is called to go plant multiple churches and not everyone is called to preach and not everyone is called to write books. Not everyone's called to be a worship leader. And not everybody is called to do something that publicly looks really Christian and looks really spiritual. When I was a, when I was a much younger man, I always thought the goal was to be able to ascend to a place where you were like a professional Christian. Right? So like, like, like oh, that guy's more holy because they, and he must be a better Christian because they put him on stage. Or that guy must be more Christian because, you know, he plays, he plays the drums or the guitar for that worship group that's selling albums. So they must be, they must be more holy. They, this dude wrote like 33 books and he uses words that I don't even know what they mean. I had to get a Webster's Dictionary. He must be, he must be more holy. And I was thinking about it and I realized that if you did not have these people written down in the Bible, they probably would not look as holy as we make them. It was a woman who hosted a home Bible study and knit clothes for the homeless. It was, it was a couple that were mature in Christ, and they invited in, they, invited, they invited in young believers, and they mentored them, and they discipled them in Christ. God did the elevating in the Bible. That's what made them saints. God raised them up. So if you want to be a saint in Christ, right, you repent and you give your life to the Lord and then you spend the rest of your life growing God, growing closer to God and loving and serving others. And that's what makes people a saint. Not so much that they're on a, sta a stage or they write books or they can sing beautiful when I can't carry a tune in a bucket. That was what was making them a saint. And so God has a history of using flawed people that we have elevated and that there's nothing wrong with honoring people. But I was thinking about Abraham Right, who twice, twice told his wife, hey, tell them you're my sister because you're so pretty, they're going to kill me so they can marry you. So we're just going to tell these people you're my sister. And then they try to take them in their harem and all everything kind of collapses in on them and they have to repent and like, sorry, she's, 
uh, my wife, not my sister. David, who had people murdered, who had an affair, whose children fell apart. This family fell apart. God raised that man up, and we look at him like a saint. We look at people like Ruth, who was a prostitute, and she's in the line of Jesus Christ, and because of what she did to hide the spies of Israel and serve God, she's elevated. I'm sorry, that was not Ruth. That was Rahab. (laughs) Oh, I'm disparaging people this morning. (laughs) Right? Saved and yielding your life to Christ is what made people a saint. So what do saints do? So if we... If we know what a saint is, a saint is someone who's given their life to Christ and is committed to following them and to love God and love, serve the, love God and love and serve others. If we know who are saints, and we're talking about people in the church who are committed to loving Jesus and loving serve others, then what do saints do? And in verse 20, we're back in Ephesians, and I dropped my, I had to do it again because I dropped my bookmark. Ephesians 2, verse 20, he says, um, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ, him building the chief cornerstone, building the kingdom of God, loving God and loving and serving others. So we are a saint because we've been saved by Christ. That's who we are. The other brothers and sisters in church who love Jesus are saints. That's who we, that's what we are. We are saints. So now what do we do? says we build the kingdom of God. We don't build our kingdom, we build the kingdom of God. Love God and love and serve others. That was one of the reasons that I was excited to um, come to the church. That's one of the reasons I decided to stay at this church. When we moved to Tucson, trying to figure out, like, where's the Lord calling us to go? I love that this church's motto is to love God and love and serve other people. Right? That's the point. We should, love Je- we should love God, and we should leave people in a better way than when we found them. Love and serve others. So when Jesus is front and center, we can love and serve others. He said Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole, and in verse 21, in who the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. So the focal point is Jesus. The focal point is Jesus. When we focus on Jesus... And he's front and center. We can love and serve others. It's hard to love and serve other people, but when Jesus is front and center, then the rest of the stuff kind of goes away. The rest of the stuff that's not important kinds to fall off to the side. It's one of the things that I really liked about mercy ships is I, I, I didn't realize it, but we tend to put denominational walls around ourselves, and we don't, I don't think we do it intentionally, but I know I, I did it unintentionally. Well, the Baptists likes doing things this way, and the Presbyterians like doing this way, and, and you know, the Church of England folk, they like to be real fancy, and they like doing things this way, and, and then the Bethel folk, they like, they're, they're nuts, they like doing things that way over there. And so you kind of, we kind of like, well, I like this camp, because this is the camp I grew up in, and everything feels comfortable, and we all read the same authors, and we all listen to the same bands, and sing the same worship songs the same way, so I like to stay in here. This is, this is where I belong, this is where I'm comfortable. And one of the things that I liked about Mercy Ships is they said, hey, we're going to love and serve others. And if you can sign a really super loose statement of faith that basically says, yeah, we like Jesus and we believe he was real, then come on in. (laughs) So we were doing ministry. I was doing ministry with people that were like super charismatic all the way to like Russia.